We can find instant satisfaction in almost anything these days. Sleepy? Instant coffee. Need to sell your car fast? Car sales? Instant offer. That's right. Sell your car the instant way. And get it done with Australia's most trusted site for cars. On 882 6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments, because the little things are everything. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments, because the little things are everything. Uh, We have an absolutely extraordinary story to share with you in this next uh, hour or so. Our guest uh, is Karina Huang. Uh, An epic story, uh, and I'm I am not underestimating, uh, understating that, uh, believe me when I say that. Uh, Karina escaped uh, from war-torn Vietnam uh, with her siblings as a teenager. She was 16 years old. Her story of escape uh, is a harrowing one. She landed uh, in Indonesia for a time uh, before then settling in the United States uh, and then later on in life uh, moving here to Perth. Uh, to start yet another chapter of her extraordinary life. Uh, among other things, uh, she's since completed a PhD at Curtin University and uh, is now also an actress, uh, landing a role in the hit ABC soap series, The Heights. So, so much to get through uh, in this next hour or so. But, uh, Karina, thank you for coming in and sharing your story with us. It's my pleasure, Tim. It's very nice meeting you. Thanks for having me here. It is a pleasure. Um, let's start uh, at the beginning. Uh, Karina, as a as a teenager in in Vietnam, uh, war has erupted. But before we get to the escape, tell me what life was like. Because I understand you lived quite a a privileged life at that time um, prior to your escape. What was life like uh, for for Karina as a say a you know twelve thirteen year old girl? Yes, um, Tim. Even though I was born and raised during the war, but uh, because I didn't know any difference, I thought that was normal, mm. and life was quite comfortable and and uh, normal to me because I had my parents, I had my siblings, um, I went to school, had friends. Um, it was great, you know. Although toward the end of the war time, um, things escalated so that at night, rocket would fly across the above the house and we were rushed into the bomb shelter that built inside the house and my father was in the military he was an officer and he was hardly home so growing up not seeing that for a long time uh, was normal yeah and uh, so I would say yes life was quite normal and privileged for us we had driver housekeepers nannies cooks you name it uh, and then one day the war ended Life just changed, just turned upside down for us. So, so it, it was the end of the war that really triggered the, the massive upheaval in your family. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, firstly, my father was taken away from us, and we had no idea if he was alive or dead, so that was a hard time for my mom and all of us to go through that, not knowing where he was. B- because of the role he played in the military at the time? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, in the end, my father was incarcerated for 14 years. Uh, without a trial, without a sentence. So for 14 years, we lived in the unknown. All we could do was just pray that we get to see him someday. Were you able to visit him or have any contact or correspondence with him? During those 14 years, I got to see my father once. Wow. Um, And that was the the first year after he was locked up, and that that was it. So when I escaped from Vietnam, um, 
I, I really thought that I'll never get to see him again. Mm. That, that was one of the hardest things for me um, to accept. You're, you're one of seven children. Yes. Whereabouts yes. were you uh, in that list of Number seven? Number two. Number, second eldest. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and your mum obviously then had to try to keep the family going, keep you safe, uh, yeah. as she suddenly found herself, I imagine, on the outer with the, uh, with the new government. Um, yes, she, she has done an incredible job because um, as soon as the government um, took over the South Vietnam, our house was confiscated. So we became homeless overnight. Wow. So while my mom was, you know, frantically looking for news about uh, my father, we had no house um, to live. We had nowhere to go. All of our possessions were confiscated by the government. Her money in the bank was freezed. My mom owns a manufacturer, and that was already taken from the government. So um, it was hard. Imagine my mom, seven little kids, her mom and her mother-in-law, so there were 10 of us, all packed in a small sedan, mm. driving from house to house between friends and relatives, you know, to just, ask for a place just to Just staying stay. on the floor right. wherever you could. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And because of my father's background, my mom could not get a job with the government. She could not register for business. Therefore, um, it was really, really tough for her to try to uh, bring home bread and butter. Mm. How did she do that? My mom actually did some trading in the open market, and it's nothing, you know, secrets or, or major rather than medicines, food, candies, whatever she can get on the day, you know, to trade to bring home a little bit of extra money. But because it was not registered, it's considered a black market. It's illegal trading. So if my mom get caught, she could be put in prison. So at the time, I was 12. My sister, Titi, was 13. The two of us went through a period of years when every day we were worried that mom might be caught. And if she get caught and put in prison, how are we going to look after the other you know, siblings? So that, that was very fearful. Oh, what a way to live your life. Mm. Um, at what point did the idea of escape start to take hold, of fleeing the country? Um, we were surrounded by people who um, talked about escaping, even though it was done secretly, but we know everyone is trying to get out of the country. And my mom did not entertain the idea because we were too young and my father was still in prison. She did not want to leave him. So she hung on to us to stay in Vietnam until 1978 when Vietnam started to have war in Cambodia. And um, the government drafted young people to go to fight the war and uh, as young as 16. And my sister was 16, I was 15, and my mom thought, well, it's time. Mm-hmm. You know, either she risked losing her children in the battlefield or risked losing their lives at seas. But if they made it, you know, they would have a better life, a future. So my mom finally had the courage to let go. Do you, do you remember having a conversation with your mum where she had to tell you, look, I think it's time for you to go, but I'm going to stay behind. I mean, that's that's a harrowing moment for any any parent, surely. You know, Tim, um, I used to think that my mom was very courageous yeah. and generous for letting us go and, you know, willing to go through that hassle and pay a lot of gold for us to escape. But now that I became a mother... I then really realized the enormity of her decision. Mm. As a mom, I could not let my daughter go in that condition. 
and also not knowing if I could ever get to see her again. Mm. So I, I think that uh, courageous is just not even the right word to describe what my mom went through. And she did it for five children, um, aged from 12 to 16, yeah. knowing that there's so much risk out there. When we escaped him, um, the chance of survival was only 10%. 10%? Yes, because we could die of um, starvation. We could die of um, hunger, thirst, storm. But the worst part was pirates. Yeah. Um, if the pirates get to us, not only they will rob our valuables, but they will kill people senselessly. They will beat up on people. They rape women and children. Um, in front of their loved ones, mm. in front of the husband or sons. And uh, in some cases, they kidnap. They just took away the children or the wives or the sisters of the other both people who were just hopelessly watched, you know. So mm. d- d- tell me about uh, when you and and four of your uh, brothers and sisters arrive to get on the boat. Do you remember the moment when you first saw this vessel that was hopefully going to lead you to a, a better life? Can you yes. remember that moment? Um, actually, I tried to escape four times. I've seen different boats. But this one here, to me, it was quite large. I thought, yeah. oh, my God, this is a big boat. But then once we got, I got down to the boat and looked around, it was covered with people. We didn't even have room to spread our legs. Everybody sat with knees to our jeans, and that's when I know that that's not big enough. The, mm. In the end, there were 373 people on the boat. And the boat was 25 meter in length and four and a half meter by width. So we had layers and layers of people. Extraordinary. And, and what was it like on there? What were the conditions like? And you know, how long were you on that boat for? The, um, the whole journey took us eight days and eight nights. But what happened was uh, when we started the journey, I didn't pay attention to the surrounding, the atmosphere, the environment, or anything. I would just hung on to this feeling of anger. Um, I was angry that I had to leave my mom and my younger siblings. I was angry that I had to leave my country and not to see my father or mom or anyone um, again. Um, so I didn't even pay attention to what lies ahead. I didn't. Mm. I was too young to really think of future, and you know, the, I was just feelings really really sad that I had to leave my mom and my family but then um, half a day out at sea we encountered a giant a enormous storm yeah. it was so vast that uh, it felt like the boat was raised up to so many level high uh, buildings and then it was slapped down you know um, up and down like that all night and anytime a wave crashing down on us we thought that the whole boat would go down. That's mm. it. So um, for all night, people were just screaming, crying, praying. Um, it's, it's incredible. You know, I, I remember the sound of children crying, adults cry, pray. We all called out to God, to our ancestors. You know, people call out to Virgin Mary, um, Buddha, Kuan Yin, you name it. It's amazing. Can I ask that the, the, all the the people on the boat that you with? Presumably, you didn't know most of them before you got there. Was it a, was was it a feeling of everyone's in it together and we'll do what we can as a group to survive, or was it almost an, a, you know a, a you versus them in order to survive? What was the atmosphere like on the boat? 
eventually it does feel it did feel like a group that yep. we all together and try to survive but at first it hit us so um, fast yep. that nobody prepared for it so mm. we all were just um, astonished by the storm and scared so yep. we just hang on to our loved ones held to each other tight and pray yep. and then uh, days later when we were sitting you know with Uh, the vomit and the you know people relieves on each other the smell the stench the stuffiness and the exhaustion and that's when we starting to just look out to other people around us and we realize that we all were just so vulnerable mm. who can help it you know um, we cannot help each other but yeah. be in the same boat together just before we get to a break tell us about uh, the encounters with pirates when you're at sea I mean you've survived the storm but then there's arguably the the bigger threat of pirates uh, coming across your boat what what happened there um, we were chased by two a group of pirates um, over the course of a day and a half hmm. the first group that chased us uh, we immediately heard the captains uh, rush down to um, tell all the women and, and girls to go down to the bottom of the boat and hide So we all rushed down to the bottom of the boat through layers of people, and uh, we just picked up vomit, oil, grease, whatever we can put our hands on to smear our face and body with to make us smell bad and look bad, hoping that the pirates would spare us. But um, in retrospect, I learned that we were wrong. If they got to us, that wouldn't stop them, you know, from rapists anyway. And uh, so we sat down the bottom of the boat for hours, um, very uh, nervous and scared and prayed and just uh, for hours. And then the, later the captains came down and said, you can come up now. They were gone. We didn't know why. Did, did they want your valuables? Did they want to take some of you as, as hostages or as property to, you know, to traffic you? Um, did they want the boat or just to wreak havoc and, and mayhem? What did, what did they um, actually want? When, when, the, when the pirates get to the boat, the boat people, they, um, they want valuables. Yep. They would search people um, thoroughly in the body to, to get gold or jewelry or money. And then they would rape women and girls. And then they would kidnap some of the uh, females hmm. and either keep them so that they can, you know, continue to rape them or they can sell them to host to um, prostitutes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there, was a, there were a lot of horrible stories about this particular island in Thailand that the pirates just took women to that little um, island and kept them there hostage um, just to, to abuse them daily until they die. Wow. Let's take a breather. Shall we? Uh, this is Inspiring Stories. Karina Huang is our special guest on 882 6BR. We'll be back with more in just a moment. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6BR brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, we are hearing the incredible story of uh, Vietnam refugee Karina Huang. Uh, we've got so much to go in this uh, epic story, so let's get back into it, Karina. Um, we're at the point where you're 
uh, on this very crowded, uh, in appalling conditions on a, a boat. Uh, you've left Vietnam, you've survived storm, you've survived pirates. Um, I understand you were shot at as well um, by Malaysian authorities. Um, you eventually landed in Indonesian territory. Um, yes. But your journey was far from over. Absolutely. Mm. Yes. Um, firstly, being shot at, how did that come about? Were you just in their territory and seen as uh, as, a, as a, a hostile enemy? Why, why were you shot at? Um, we were aiming toward Malaysia. Yep. So when we saw land, uh, we thought we arrived to safety and mm. everybody would just woke up with a new burst of energy and hope, you know. Yep. we. We thought, oh my God, we are alive. We will be saved. We find we no longer have to deal with pirates and storms. Um, and um, just, just imagine if you nearly drown, somebody throw you a life vest. That's how we felt. We yeah. felt, you know, full of hopes. But then, as we approached the shore, we heard a lot of gunshots, and everybody was just froze and confused. We didn't know who was shooting at who, um, and the boat stopped to. Um, to look around, see what was going on, and we saw a the military boat come from shore toward us with guns pointed at our boat, and that's when we know that they, they simply didn't want you to land there. Right. Yeah. And and um, the interesting was on June first, nineteen seventy nine, Malaysian government came out with the new law, and that was to stop the boat. They pushed back any boat, and they decided to shoot any boat that come near them. We came on the second of June. <laughs> So we had no idea that we were, you know, one of the first few boats that were shot at by yeah. them. But then um, they they pulled us out to the ocean, the middle of the ocean. The military came on the boat, you know, the, with ammunitions and all suited up as military uh, soldiers, and they robbed us. They took our valuables. They took our navigation tools. The ones that the pirates hadn't already found, I suppose. Right. Mm. And then uh, in the middle of the night, they cut the rope and told us, do not come back. I remember vividly the moment when a soldier pointed his rifle at my brother's neck to demand a necklace that my brother was wearing. And um, shakenly, I removed the necklace and gave it to him, but I keep praying to him and I keep saying, please, please don't shoot, don't shoot in, in Vietnamese language. And uh, for years, I woke up with nightmares, screaming, "Dừng bắn, dừng bắn," and um, that stayed with me for a long, long time. That Don't shoot. scary moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, on to Indonesia, where your your plight didn't really improve, did it? Um, where did you land in Indonesia, and what was what was that like? What were you met with there? We ended up at a small fishing village in Indonesia. And we learned from the incident in Malaysia, so the captains decided to sink the boat. Yep. So that, A, they cannot tell us to, you know, go back to sea. While you're on it? Right. Yep. And, B, they probably didn't have a boat big enough to take all 370 people out there, you know. So um, we sunk the boat, and eventually the local authorities said, okay, you can get off the boat, and then but stay in the foot of the jungle. So we just spread out in the jungle and waiting for the local authorities to come and take us to uh, wherever they can take us. And we would transfer from island to island a few times before we were taken to a place where they call refugee camp. And uh, in my mind, even though I've never been to a refugee camp before, I thought it would be a place that have shelters and, you know, um, 
food and rations and medicines, and then we will be interviewed by the UNHCR, and off we go to America. That's mm. all you know. We we knew, but it wasn't like that at all. It turned out to be a jungle. When when just backtracking a little bit, when your mum said it's time for you to go, was America the destination that you all had in mind? Is yes. that where you? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's mainly because um, there wasn't any information from the outside world that can be transferred to Vietnam. There was we're not allowed to listen to radios or watching news or receive any newspapers or magazines, letters that were sent back from overseas by family members will be confiscated. They never reached us, so we really didn't know much of what's going on out there. We just know that if we left Vietnam and we were not killed, yeah. we'll be in America. Yeah. I understand conditions in Indonesia were terrible in themselves, and, and, and many of the people who you uh, had been on that journey with perished Yes. in Indonesia. Can you give us some insight into, um, into those conditions there that you faced? Well, statistically, um, about... 900,000 Vietnamese boat people made it to shore. In but Indonesia? U, uh, to, in, to other Asia to, countries. To wherever, right. yep. But the UNHCR estimated that one out of three perished. So, and overall, we estimated about a quarter of a million Vietnamese boat people perished along the way. So Indonesia was one of the destinations that had um, hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese boat people arrived. But when we came, we were the first group of boat people that arrived in Indonesia, the government wasn't prepared for us. Mm. They um, were the the result of the pushback from Malaysia that they all of a sudden more Vietnamese boat people came to Indonesia. The number increased by hundreds fold. So every day there were thousands arrived. They weren't prepared for us. So that's why we ended up stranded in jungles. Mm. Um, from Indonesia then on to the United States, um, how, how quickly was that process to get you from from the shores of, of, of a, a, a jungle island in Indonesia to America? Um, was that weeks, months? Oh, Tim, we were there for nearly a year. Wow. Yes, I know. The, the first three months was really horrible, and uh, we barely survived. Mm. The uh, a death was very real, was near. Every day I got up in the morning, felt the hands of my sister and brother, and know that we were alive for maybe another day. Um, because I actually had held that baby in my arms and I have seen people being buried every day, so I know that, you know, it could be our fate. Um, so the first three months, um, we lived in that condition and then the UNHCR and the Red Cross found us and that's when, you know, lives, um, we lose less lives and we start to have hope and know that we were saved. But it still took another eight months for us to finally resettle in America. Yeah. And uh, whereabouts in America did you uh, settle? Philadelphia. Right. Yeah. And uh, you know, I then after we survived the boat journey, we thought that was the hurdle that we had to go through. But then, no, we still have to deal with lives in the refugee camps and try to survive for many reasons that we could die. And then after we got out of the camp, made it to America. I went to high school immediately, and I thought, oh, my God, learning English will be the hardest thing in life. <laughs> Jesus, surviving a even, jungle was easier. Even after what you'd been through. <laughs> right. <laughs> Having said that, you not only learned English, but you completed high school in just about record time. I did, yes. Mm. Mm -hmm. I tried two to years. learn English at the same time and finished high school in two years. And so you earned, finished all of high school in two years. And earned a scholarship straight to college. Wow. <laughs> 
So you obviously had some some smarts about you uh, all along the way. Um, no, I think it's more like <laughs> just determination. You just wanted to. You were so, so desperate to start this new life. Exactly. When yeah. you have to, you you will make it. Yeah. yeah. And and were you still together and and close with your siblings at this point? We were very, very close. That's yeah. all we have. Yeah. Just five of us, teenagers, with our parents, trying to survive in a new country, um, try to encourage each other to go to school, but at the same time, knowing that our parents are in Vietnam, in prison, our little siblings were not looked after. It was a hard thing to go yeah. through. Are you able to still stay in any contact at this point with your mum and the two youngest uh, children in your family? We can send letters and receive yeah. letters, but it will be like one every six months. Right. It will take that long for a letter to reach her. Yeah. And, of course, the letters will be censored. You spent many years uh, in the U.S., and, um, you know, at one point you end up in Los Angeles working in high-end fashion. I mean, that's talk about a culture shock from Vietnam to these appalling conditions as you fled. And then you end up on the streets of, you know, of, of Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. How, did, how does that happen? I know. I, I couldn't explain that either. How did that happen? A newly fresh refugee in America ended up working on Rodeo Drive <laughs> back in 1980, seeing people spend 800 US dollars for a belt. Um, that was out of my, you know, it's, it's unheard of. But um, I, um, when I was in college, I had a job in um, a retail store. Yeah. <coughs> And that led to one thing led to another. Then I was uh, recommended by the sales manager because I was the top sales producer all the times to go and apply for this one shop in Beverly Hills. And I didn't even know what Beverly Hills was or Rodeo Drive, anything like that. I went and applied and they hired me and then the whole new world opened up to me. Did you find that world attractive at all? I mean, I mean certainly different to the one that you just left behind but did did you find that that lifestyle there attractive or was there something grotesque about it um it's not grotesque it's interesting it's exciting but it's not my life mm. you know i i went on about it enjoying all the new things that i learned um you know experienced very luxurious lifestyle to see other people come with that kind of money but i know it wasn't my life so i took that as uh, is is a job, yeah. And I went into work every day, enjoying and coming home, uh, f- knowing that I'm going back to my life. It's almost like I have to separate that mm. in order to cope, because there's no way for me to understand that kind of yeah. you know differences in yeah. society. Yeah. So much more to get through in your story, uh, Karina. But we do have to take a break. We'll be back with more in just a moment. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, we are hearing the uh, the inspiring story of Karina Huang. Um, Karina we have to we have to skip through so much here because there is there are so many little um, little stories as part of your bigger story. But um, let's go back to where we left just before the break. There, so you're you're, you're in the US. You're working uh, in a high end fashion store, encountering celebrities, movie stars on a daily basis, which must have just been surreal. Um, 
It took 10 years for you then to be able to go back to Vietnam, though. Th- those 10 years, how, how were you processing all of what you'd been through? And, and how much were you longing for um, news from home and being reunited uh, with your mum and the siblings you left behind? Oh, um, we always, always wish to go home to visit the, our parents or the... We never stopped dreaming of that, but mm. at the time, it's almost like a dream. It yeah. didn't feel like we could do that because, firstly, we escaped from Vietnam to go back. We could be in trouble with the government. And secondly, because at the time, U.S. and Vietnam did not have normalized relationships, so to go back to Vietnam is almost like a forbidden. Yeah, and so, your dad's still in prison at this point, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So why 10 years? Um, that was when my father was released from prison after I left the country. And I heard that he was really ill, and I was worried that I don't get to see him before you know uh, he passed away. And um, I re- came, ran into a friend who actually returned to Vietnam, and he saw my mom, so he reached out to me, and he said, I went back to Vietnam recently, and I saw your mom. And she asked if um, you could come back to visit. And I uh, thought, oh, my God, you know, it would be amazing if I could. So I stay in touch with that friend. And um, eventually he made another journey and he took me back. So I went to work and asked my manager if um, he would allow me to take some time off to go back to Vietnam. And because I worked for a pharmaceutical company at the time, because I had a degree in chemistry. Yeah. And uh, so um, it wasn't the kind of job that have high security that the government would not allow me to go back. However, I was still taking a risk because mm. it was not really illegal to go. And uh, luckily for me, my supervisor, an American man who married a Vietnamese woman, oh, so right. he understand the situation and he said, okay, this is your risk, but yes, you can take some time off to go. And I went and um, I was very, very, very glad that I did. Um, even though I was very worried at first, didn't know if the government will, you know, do anything to me, but um, there was no problem. Yeah. And uh, went back to see my father. Uh, it was the hardest thing because he had aged so much, um, and uh, he was very ill. It was very difficult to see because the memory I had of my dad when I was twelve years old was a very powerful, handsome, successful man and now he was frail like an old man with a lot of illness Mm. and was it your your hope your dream then to collect the rest of your family and and get them out of vietnam at that point um we started that process as soon as we arrived in uh, as soon as we became u.s citizen we know that we can apply for our parents and siblings to join us but um, only when I returned to Vietnam, I, I was able to pick up um, the paperwork from there and push on because for years, my sisters and my mom couldn't follow through with it. The yeah. Vietnam it was very difficult. So since I saw my dad that time, every year I returned to Vietnam and follow up until I got them all out. Yeah. And that took me another five years. So you got the family back together eventually. Yes. Uh, in the United States. In the United States all together. And, and, and I, what was that like? It was incredible. Um, it, it was a dream come true, but it's almost like it's um, hard to believe. Mm. You know, that's the kind of dream that uh, not everyone can, can fulfill. Mm. Uh, I have to say we were very lucky, you know, to have all of us still alive 
after two different escapes, and my father was in prison for all those time. My mom was also in prison for a number of years after I left. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we are very very lucky. You had a lot of time to catch up on. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Um, tell me about how you met your your husband Robert, and then what prompted your move from the U.S. here to Perth in Australia. Um, yes, after. Um, I became a U.S. citizen and I worked in different jobs and I was approached by um, uh, someone at the U.S. consulate and said they wanted to send Vietnamese overseas, uh, American Vietnamese to work in the consulate in the refugee resettlement section to help handle refugee cases. And I took that as an opportunity for me to help refugees and Vietnamese people, even though my background was in chemistry and, and of course fashion <laughs> um, so I took that and I returned to Vietnam to work and um, Robert um, was a um, property developer from Perth he went to Vietnam to build a resort and uh, my first night out in Saigon I went to a restaurant and bar where all the expats hang out and he was there and we met right. and uh, one thing led to another eventually we decided to get married but the condition was Robert had to go to America with me. Yep. So I sponsored Robert to America. We had our daughter, and then Robert asked me to move to Perth because his parents were getting older and yep. he wanted to be with them. And um, so I agree. And I am so glad he asked me because I fell in love with Perth and I had developed great network and beautiful friends here. How hard was it, though, leaving your siblings and all of the new families that they'd started in the U.S., leaving them behind uh, again, if you like, uh, in the U.S. That must have been a huge wrench for you. It, it was a very, very hard decision. Yeah. Um, but because the world becomes smaller since we can travel, you know, so I didn't feel like it was so bad. At least I can still visit them, and I did. You know, I went back to see my family um, once or twice a year, so that was fine. But it was very difficult because um, I... It's almost like I start all over again in Australia, yeah. except that I speak English, so that helped. Yeah. But still, you know, different culture. Still a new culture to Right. And the only people to. I know were my husband and his mm. family. I didn't have any friends or anyone here mm. at first. Um, there's still another big part of your story to get through. We need to take another break, though, Karina. But uh, we will get into um, what you've been doing to help people heal the wounds um, who've been through things similar to you. Uh, in escaping Vietnam. This is Inspiring Stories. We'll be back with more in just a moment. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, Karina Huang is our special guest. Uh, Karina, 2006, you find yourself relocating again uh, with your then husband, Robert, to Perth. Um, one of the things that you set your mind to was helping to um, assist other people who'd, who'd also fled Vietnam, because we, obviously we know that a lot of people ended up here in Australia, but a, a big part of the healing for them, healing those wounds, was uh, going back to places like Indonesia and finding... Uh, the graves of their loved ones. Why was that such a, a special mission for you? 
um, Tim, it started out with me looking for the grave of my own cousin yep. back in 1998. And that This cousin that you mentioned before who was like a brother. Right. Yeah. Yep. Right. I had a cousin um, that I was very close to, and he was 17, I was 16. We both escaped at the same time. We made it to Indonesia, but on different islands. And months later, I heard news that he died. And um, a few years later, I uh, reunited with his mom in California, and we talked about his death, and I know how devastated she was. But then years went on. Um, she still carried that burden with her. She literally lost the will to live mm. because not only she was suffering um, the, the loss of her son, but her pain that she carries compounded with guilt. And that was because she couldn't give him a proper burial. She couldn't go back and revisit his grave yearly as we do uh, as part of our culture. And um, so I just, out of the blue, said one day I will go and find his grave and bring his ashes back for her. And uh, 19 years after he died, I did it. I brought, I found a grave in the jungle, cremated his remains, brought the ashes back, and I saw my aunt literally transform. Mm. You know, she just became a new person. She, she was able to enjoy life again, and I know that she was carrying all this pain and guilt, and she was not alone. Yeah. So I set out to help other families, um, and I know the pain that they were having and how much it meant for them once they found a grave. It's the closure that they've been looking for. And um, there were so many of them out there needed this field, this closure. How do you identify the graves there? Because I'm picturing something that's fairly fairly makeshift. It's not a, a nicely chiseled headstone in, in neat, orderly rows. Some of the graves still have headstones, yep. but rarely. And most of them, even if they had headstones at the time, they were all destroyed and gone. Um, the graves are usually just, um, we recognize them because they have rocks formation. And usually the headstone was just a rock. And some of the people who came along remember where they buried their loved ones. And some of them did not. And uh, um, sometimes I use a pendulum to help me guide uh, you know, family to mm. the grave and um Amazingly, we excavated a grave that was the right one. Yeah. And it's almost been successful. Every grave we set out to look for, we found. And I have returned seven times. Yeah. And you, you, you're still still doing it. Obviously, with travel restrictions at the moment, it's not impossible. But it's still a mission that you're, uh, you're committed to. It is, yes. Yeah. I still have families out there waiting for me to take them back to the jungle to find graves of their loved ones. Yeah. Um, and again, your story, there's so much to it. I haven't even mentioned the fact that along the way you've managed to acquire a Bachelor of Chemistry, a Bachelor of Arts with honours in Gender and Cultural Studies, uh, an MBA <laughs> and a PhD in Humanities at Curtin University here in Perth, of course, um, <laughs> which is uh, quite a list. But tell me about how you ended up an actress um, I mean, of all things to add to your bow, um, how did you become an actress? The first thing first, I always like to try something new. <laughs> Clearly. Uh, and uh, out of the blue, I received an email that was sent to the Vietnamese community here in Perth. Um, it wasn't even sent to me the, specifically. And the email uh, had an attachment said, ABC is looking for a Vietnamese woman with or without acting experience to audition for a role for a TV drama series. And I thought, oh, 
uh, I'm Vietnamese woman I'm within this age group and I do not have acting experience, but they didn't mind. So I'm going to give it a try uh, mm. for the experience, I thought. And I went and auditioned and I had a callback and the second callback and then I was offered the role. And that was when I realized that A is a big show and B was one of the main roles. And mm. I just rolled with it. Yeah. And you love it? I'm loving it, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and and going forward, you're hoping for, obviously, for this character to continue, but is it something you'd like to do more of? I would, yes. I'd like to explore this area more. Um, I have an agent now, so hopefully wow, I'll pick up something you. else to do. <laughs> um, but what I did was I recently received a grant from Screen West. Yeah. So I uh, learned how to develop a pitch document for a TV series. Yeah. So um, hopefully we get to see a, a TV drama based on my story. I was going to say, I mean, I think your story probably deserves uh, a documentary. It would have to be a 25-part documentary, <laughs> Karina, you. to include all of it. Um, the recognition, though, that comes uh, from being on a hit TV series, how are you coping with that? Well, I, I mean, because it, it's, been, it's been played internationally, uh, the heights it's been it's been a hit how are you coping with that oh i'm enjoying it yeah it, it was really strange at first yeah but i'm getting you know the, a little bit used to it now yeah. i even received f- uh, email from fan from the uk so that's something i'll treasure forever all those celebrities that you uh, had to tend to in the on, on rodeo drive in beverly hills you're almost one of them now karina it's unreal <laughs> tim but it's unreal it's hard for me to see it like that yeah um, with the restrictions in place at the moment, are you longing to see your siblings and their families uh, in the US? That must be that must be tough for you. Yes, it is. I'm yep. waiting every day for the news to when I can travel again to yep. see them. Um, so, what else does the future hold for you, Karina? You've done an extraordinary amount uh, so far in your lifetime. What else are you hoping to do? Um, I'm a publisher too, so I just continue to publish books for people yep. and uh, and write my own. Yeah. But hopefully that TV series or documentary will come out. I hope so too, because it'll be epic. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story. It's been amazing. It's Thank my you pleasure. very much. Thank you. Uh, you've been listening to uh, Inspiring Stories here on 882 6BR, the inspiring story of Karina Huang. Uh, don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA inspiring story. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Stuff for your face and body? It's men's skincare with a purpose. Top quality Aussie-made grooming and skincare to help guys look and feel great with no hassles. Plus, Stuff is helping mental health too. Find Stuff at Woolworths or visit websiteofstuff.com.